2: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said, I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with four guests about the collection that was recently published, The Burden of the Past, History, Memory and Identity in Contemporary Ukraine, published by Indiana University Press in 2020. I'm happy to welcome Anna Wiligawa, one of the editors of the volume. She's assistant professor at the Institute of Philosophy and Sociology, Polish Academy of Sciences. She's author of Displaced Memories, Remembering and Forgetting in Post-War Poland and Ukraine. Anna Abakunova, former associate tutor at the University of Sheffield and the Yaroslav and Nadia Mihičuk Research Fellow in Ukrainian Studies at the Ukrainian Research Institute, Harvard University. She's co-author of The Genocide and Persecution of the Roma and Sinti, bibliography and historiographical review, published by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance in 2016. Currently, she's an independent researcher, and she's working on her monograph about the self-rescue and rescue of Roma and Jews in Ukraine during the Holocaust. Matthew Pawley is associate professor of history at Michigan State University, his author of Breaking the Tongue, Language, Education and Power in Soviet Ukraine, 1923 1934. Medadai talked about this book on this channel in 2016. Daria Mettingly is Levin Hume, early career fellow at University of Cambridge, where she teaches on Soviet history. Her current book project focuses on Jews in the Holodomor. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And first of all, congratulations on the volume. When I first saw the title of the volume, it immediately piqued my interest, not only because memory studies and cultural memory is my research interest, but also because the volume is quite an innovative work. Uh, Memory studies has uh, experienced a boom over the last few decades However, the topics that you bring up and the way you discuss them are rather new for Ukrainian studies in particular. Uh, You initiate conversation about how tragic, traumatic topics can be approached, not only locally, but globally as well. Uh, Would you share your experience on or working on this uh, book? Uh, What was the driving force and uh, what would you like to communicate with this volume? And I believe this first question will be for Anna.
3: Uh, thank you, Natalia, for bringing bringing all of us together to this interview. <clears throat> I really appreciate your time. Uh, and uh, while well, I think that, uh, as many other volumes of that kind, uh, this book uh, began with a meeting with a workshop, um, exactly that we had in Warsaw in Warsaw, I believe, in two thousand and fourteen. <clears throat> And that was a workshop uh, um, devoted to the memory studies in Ukraine and in Belarus originally, Mm. but not so many scholars (laughs) working with Belarus uh, arrived. So finally, we had a workshop uh, devoted almost uh, exclusively to uh, Ukrainian studies um, in field of memory. Um, And of course, we didn't have the volume in mind when starting the workshop, but then um uh, it happened that the workshop proved to be very interesting and Daria and Anna attended the workshop. But also uh, uh, only two, only three participants of the workshop um, became authors of the of the volume because we realized that somehow the general topic of memory studies in Ukraine is of course too broad and <clears throat> we are thinking about how to how to narrow it. And how to make it interesting and specific, and we decided <clears throat> to go for uh, uh, for discussing the difficult past. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is really a broad definition, uh, and it's quite often overused. But we we had a feeling that for Ukraine, it's really really important, and um, it somehow explains what's happening in with Ukrainian past and how the past is used and misused. Uh, So we decided to invite um, some other scholars and to focus on issues that we found particularly interesting and relevant for this um, uh, issue of difficult past or difficult memory. Um, And this, of course, brings us uh, to the second question of you. So what we wanted to communicate what this book was meant for and i would say that um, we wanted to show how important still past and memory is in contemporary korean even comparing with other countries of central and eastern europe and uh, there are some reasons for why this uh, this past and this difficult memory is important and um, i would start with the first one which is I think quite visibly in our volume. So, uh, past is not only a past in Ukraine, and I would say that it's still so much <clears throat> connected with, uh, of course, with memory, with identity, but also with nation building, with state building, and with politics. Which is not, no, it's not in our title, but <clears throat> I still think that politics, politics is really. Uh, really involved in involved in uh, what's happening, uh, uh, and the second issue is uh, the internal diversity of Ukraine. And of course, there are many countries in Europe, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, which share this uh, feature of being so diverse in terms of historical experience. But uh, what's different for Ukraine is that. Um, Ukrainian regions or Ukraine or parts of Ukraine who, which have um, different historical experience, are not left alone with dealing with this experience. And when we were um, when we were organizing the workshop, it was 2014, so it was sort after the annexion of Crimea and so on and so on. And we really had this feeling that, well, it's happening. The past <coughs> is used in politics and is influencing the lives of, uh, like, normal average people. Mm -hmm. So, um, so again, um, all countries, all nations or societies uh, have to take under account um, their neighbors when dealing with their on difficult path, but situation in Ukraine is quite specific because, because there is still a war and, and not only um, necessity to take under account your neighbor and to deal with uh, these with relationships um, in terms of uh, a dialogue, uh, academic life or so. So basically, uh, this is what we had in mind when working with this volume.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anna. Uh, your statement about, uh, uh 2014, uh, as the time period when the pa- past uh, was brought back uh, to the present and when the past was kind of replayed again, uh, really, uh, resonates <laughs> with me. Um, when, uh, I'm thinking back about those events that were starting, uh, uh taking place in 2014, uh, I feel like some statements from the 19th century in particular were just brought to the 21st century. And Anna, uh, Daria, Matt, uh, did you participate in the workshop that uh, Anna just mentioned? I did yes, not.
4: I have participated and I think only me did it uh, among mm-hmm. uh, all of us. Ah, Daria. You did as well, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember that uh, there were actually many people uh, who were listening to our presentations and uh, a lot of Poles uh, who didn't know Ukrainian or Russian, but workshop was in English and Polish Mm -hmm. and many Polish people could participate. And uh, they were a very active I, I still remember this workshop because uh, for that year it was the best one in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And before, I also didn't have so large audience, different um, international experience with uh, different scholars. And also, uh, I think that was only the second workshop where I had to submit my paper in advance. Mm -hmm. So I had a chance to work on my paper later as well and to develop it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. actually, I'm very grateful uh, for this to Anna and Malgozata. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Daria?
5: Yeah, I um, second to everything Anna just said. And indeed, um, the discussions were very engaging during the workshop. So um, as a presenter myself, I received a lot of valuable uh, feedback Um and met the scholars who, whose books I read. And it was just an incredible event. And uh, I wasn't surprised when Anna reached out uh, to the participants suggesting putting a volume together, mm-hmm. because so many things were discussed. And uh, there were participants from Belarus mm-hmm. who were uh, discussing activism. And indeed, some of them are activists uh, who are taking part in the protests as we speak. So mm-hmm. that uh, it was a seminal event indeed.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, and Matt... You didn't but
2: did
1: not I did not participate. Clearly, I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds wonderfully engaging. Uh, I mean, obviously, those are the best conferences where papers are circulated beforehand, and yes. there's an engaged yeah. audience. <laughs> but um no, I was invited. Uh, I responded to a call for papers for um, for the volume, and I added an essay I, I think that sort of rounds out the history. I think that that uh the editors have done a remarkable job in um mm-hmm. uh, in providing a really quite even treatment of different moments in ukraine's quite troubled and contested past.
2: Yeah, and quite different perspectives, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I if I may
3: add something, I just thought that a quite important idea that we had somewhere behind with Mogulato when working on the volume was that we wanted to have it both internationally recognizable, with I mean, with scholars who are already known uh, in the field, but also we we wanted to give the floor to scholars who are really well known in Ukraine and in Poland, but usually write in Polish or in, in Ukrainian, and they are not so much um, known abroad.
2: And I I think we <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Um, so in, in the introduction part that you, Anna, co-authored with uh, Mogojata lovatska griper uh, you referred to Oksana Shevel, who claims that Ukraine still has a chance to develop uh, polarized regimes of uh, memory that is, in short, a society with pluralistic visions of the past that <coughs> do not compete and do not fight with each other. Uh, could you please elaborate on this statement a little bit?
3: Yes, basically. Uh, well, we, we found this uh, this notion or this this definition of uh, memory regimes um, really useful for our volume, and basically, basically Oksana Shevel um, distinguishes three types of memory regimes, which is homogeneous one, which does not happen so often, <laughs> um, which means that everybody shares the same historical experience and also. There are no problems with evaluation of the past and no problems with different opinion of the past. So, well, this is rather kind of uh, theoretical (laughs) type. The second one is fractured and then there is the pillarized. And uh, pillarized seems to be most wanted one because it means that, well, we have different historical experiences and... Uh, but no, but people do not need to share these experiences and this uh, this uh, evaluation of the past and opinions of the past to live peacefully in one society, and this is what uh, what the author, what Oksana Shevel uh, somehow wishes to. <laughs> everybody is successful, to to each successful democratic society. But then uh, there remains this uh, fractured memory regime, which means that uh, that uh, there are different historical communities of experience and it causes problems for the society. Uh, And I would say that uh, Her uh, statement that in Ukraine, in general, elites are fractured, which means that they fight with each other because they do not share the same vision of the past and they want their own vision of the past to become, uh, well, the one which is the ruling one. Um, But at the same time, uh, the society is much more similar uh, to the... A uh, pillarized memory regime, uh, which means that for everyday life, for average people, the past is important, but not important enough to divide them and to make them fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I would say that from the volume, it's quite obvious that in most cases, it is, as she states, and also from my own fieldwork, it comes out that yes, the past is dividing, and it's might be difficult even within the families, uh, within the um, local communities, within the regions, but um, until it's not used by the elites, people can live with this difficult historical experiences and belonging to this difficult, uh, to this different um, uh, memory uh, communities. Uh, and the problem is when, the elites decide to to mobilize um, every uh, average people and uh, people who normally do not have problems with the past. So I would say that uh, as long as the political elites belong to this um, fractured uh, memory regime, it is a potential danger also to be also because they can be this elite, they can be used by external powers uh, uh, and might, it might cause problems mm-hmm. for the entire society.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah well uh your um, uh, statement uh, resonates with the one that you mentioned earlier about uh, uh, 2014 when the past was replayed again uh, and that past was used by some political agents political actors uh, and i think that um, this idea about um, uh pluralistic vision of the past makes so much sense because uh, well especially for ukraine because it's so diverse in terms of cultures and ethnic uh, groups groups, and nations. However, uh, on the, let's say, um, on the uh, level of Population, right, so we can see some uh, common, um, so to speak, points or uh, common uh, visions, Uh, but on the political level, unfortunately, history uh, and the past in particular uh, are very much uh, instrumentalized um, to achieve some political goals. And maybe, Matt, can you comment on the usage of the history for political uh, purposes today in Ukraine? Maybe just a a few words.
1: Yeah, so my essay is on Simon, Simon Petlora, uh, and I would uh, advance the claim, I think, that he is not a good figure for introducing the notion of a pillarized history, right? Is, his image is just so contested, and uh, a lot of what I investigate, I mean, I, I was motivated to write this essay because of my work on the 20s and 30s. And the way that Pudor became a bête noir of uh, Ukrainian nationalism from the Soviets. And essentially what I argue is that that um, construction of an image has an afterlife in the post-Soviet era that makes him an irredeemable figure. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be good historical scholarship on him, um, nor should his merits his merits should be investigated as well um, Obviously in the in the contemporary moment Todora has been called upon by those um, Advocating for a strong defiance of Russia's sponsorship of, uh, of, of Rebels in southeastern Ukraine um, And it's natural. I think that one looks towards his image but for a whole portion of the of, of Ukraine's population that grew up in the Soviet era, he is an uncomfortable person to use for, for that purpose. Um, so I, I'd say uh, it, it's a natural sort of grasp, um, but uh, but one can reference the history of the ukrainian people's republic as a whole and these ideas about ukrainian uh, assertion of its own sovereignty without highlighting pedora i mean it's, it's a difficult thing to do but um But his problematic character.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, your piece is um, uh, titled um, um, Simon uh, Petlura, the Ukrainian People's uh, Republic and National Commemoration in Contemporary Ukraine. Uh, And you also provide uh, some examples from uh, um, those images that were popular or widespread under the Soviet Union. So maybe just a few words about uh, this comparison and about this shift uh, from the representation of Simon Petlure in the Soviet Union and in contemporary Ukraine.
1: Right. So, uh, I mean, for my work on Ukrainianization um, that I did prior to the publication of this essay, uh it, the term, uh, uh um, the age of Petlora, uh, these sorts of things were bandied around by the Soviets to essentially tar anyone that overly asserted their Ukrainianness, Um, and it served as a caution against those that would, um, those that were still in, in in soviet ukraine that were recruited for the process of Ukrainianization, that is promotion of ukrainian culture and language um that had a past in the ukrainian people's republic so it, it meant to, to uh, warn them to to be careful um about what they said and uh and they could be quickly uh, associated with uh, a past that was taboo by the invocation of the term Um I talk in the essay, maybe one moment I, that I think is quite instrumental of what uh, I'm talking about. Um, so it, it carries on uh, and uh, uh, there are several in, individuals who are associated with Ukrainianization that uh, are arrested as part of this Union for Liberation of Ukraine trial and one of the chief charges made against them is that they held a requiem for pedora a secret requiem for pedora in um in saint sophia uh after pedora's assassination in 1926 and what has happened (laughs) in the post-soviet era is there actually was this sort of requiem um an event probably that never occurred but uh, Ukrainians who want to memorialize his memory did so all all the same. Um, but uh, there's been, particularly in, I, I, I argue that this process of, of contesting Petlora um, and promoting Petlora has a long-range perspective to it. Uh, the, the push for commemoration of Petlora be, really began under Yushenko, uh, under President Yushchenko, beginning in 2004, one could say among intellectuals and historians, even before then, and, and sort of nationally minded activists. Um, but uh, but those who oppose him never disappeared, and their and there's calls against his uh, commemoration become more strident. Uh, over the course of time, particularly under Yushchenko. so mm-hmm. uh, so those who who want to <laughs> memorialize him, those who were present at this, in fact, requiem that occurred. Uh, Faced real opposition, particularly in in the the more um, I suppose leftist press in, in Ukraine. Um, uh, but uh, it's not just that, of course. Petlura is accused of uh, of uh, being responsible for pogroms against Jews in 1919 for Western Ukraine. He's not a particularly savoury figure because he signed this treaty with Poland, which essentially um, forfeited. Um, uh, Western uh, Ukraine to the poles, uh, and so uh, his, his opposition to him not doesn't just come from the political left and those who would valorize, I suppose, the Soviet narrative of 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 him as a, an arch enemy of um, the people's cause in, in Ukraine in the Soviet
2: time. Uh, and for uh, memory studies, one of this basic fundamental uh, issues uh, is what's the difference between uh, history and memory. So, what's the difference between history and memory for you as a
0: historian? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Uh, I mean, history, uh, <laughs> to me, we we simply need to know w- what happened. Uh, and so they're absolutely great works of scholarship on Laura's role, for example, um, uh, in uh, in issuing calls uh, to Ukrainian soldiers and the like not to engage in pogroms and condemnation of these sorts of things. And then there's been new calls for more rigorous study of the the context of his assassination in Paris, all that stuff, I think is the good work of historians. Memory, for me, uh, is, I suppose, a way in which history can be made operational. And um, if you forgive the term, it may not be this way, but I think it is, at least in the case that I'm talking about, can be weaponized um, for a particular particular cause. Um, and then memory, I, I make this distinction between functional memory and storage memory in my essay. Um, Uh, there's a functional memory, which I suppose is this operational type of memory, and then memory that persists in the minds of those who either experienced events or learned a a history that was different than the sort of propagandistic history that they uh, were taught by the Soviets. And I, I suggest that 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 storage memory of Petlora as the leader of what many Ukrainians consider to be a noble cause, the Ukrainian People's Republic, um, got in the way of what the Soviets were doing, uh, has carried over to this day and motivates this uh, attempt at commemoration. Um, but it, it, it still has to deal with a, a very strong storage memory also um, from the Soviet era. right? So there's a functional memory that the Soviets... Employ, and then in the post Soviet era, Mm -hmm. that becomes a sort of storage memory that um, carries over Mm -hmm. into the present time.
2: Well, thank you, Matt. Sure. Uh, Anna, uh, you wrote about the uh, Roma collective memory in your piece Extermination of the Roma in uh, Transnistria during World War II Construction of the Roma Collective Memory Uh, This is a very interesting topic and the way you approach it is rather uh, new uh, as well Uh, How personal memories can uh, develop into collective memory Furthermore, how collective memory can become some basis for the consolidation of a community, ethnic group, and further nation. Uh, Would you guide us through your main argument, as well as through your topic, which focuses on the Roma? Okay.
4: So, the paper was written in 2014, and then developed through a couple of years, and... um, since then, I a little bit changed actually my perception uh, of um, of the Roma communities in Ukraine and their memory and um, uh, the events of last two years show more active participation of the Roma communities in commemoration in. Um, in in defense of human rights and so on. So I'm not sure that uh, what was written in 2014 (laughs) can be applied 100% now. Um, And this is the problem with academia, actually, that all our research are published quite late. Mm -hmm. So the actual fieldwork was done in 2010-12. The piece was written in 2014, and publication itself came out uh, early 2020. That's (laughs) almost eight years, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, then uh, in the article, in that chapter, I... analyzed the Roma uh, memory, individual and collective, uh, through uh, three uh, different dimensions. It's like everyday life dimensions, uh, socio-political dimension and historical. And uh, what I uh, tried to show is that uh, first, um, not, it's not easy to research Roma communities at all because they're quite close and they don't want, in most cases, and don't allow non-Roma to enter their community. Mm-hmm. And even some Roma who are not from communities uh, still have different uh, difficulties um, to research other Roma communities because they're different. Uh, second is that uh, even with all those complications, I managed to uh, take um, some interviews with uh, the Roma and I see that uh, traces of memory are still... Um, their memory still, sorry, their memory still contain traces of memory of, of those events because they were too traumatic and too tragic. And in this sense, then um, Roma not uh, different from uh, Jews, for example, who survived the same deportations of Transnistria and the um, annihilation, or from Ukrainians who uh, survived uh, Holodomor. Uh, and uh, also, it's not also, it's on the other hand, Roma don't want to tell the same experience uh, as Jews want.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And another thing that, of course, political events very much influence uh, the Roma uh, way uh, to. To tell their stories and to participate, so-called participation in um, common life with others. Uh, what I mean, participation in common life with others, it means that uh, uh, Roma more and more uh, go to um, different events uh, on commemoration. They participate and create different NGOs, which uh, not only um, fight for their rights, but also try to promote historical uh, past uh, for future learning and try to uh, collect or engage uh, Roma scholars, uh, first of all, scholars of Roma origin to learn their past and to transmit uh, uh, Roma perception of history to, um, to the world, mm-hmm. let's say, to uh, others, uh, researchers, not Roma researchers and research communities. In this sense, uh, what I have written in my uh, chapter in 2014, it's quite changed now because we can see a um, couple of very important Roma researchers of the Holocaust uh, and the Roma deportations in Transnistria like Adrian Fortuna who is Roma, who has Roma origin uh, or um, Ionida Kostashe who researched music uh, in uh, Roma music in Romania and also deportations of Roma in Transnistria, and Ion Domenica from Moldova who is a uh, Roma origin and who is an Academy of Science uh, of Moldova so uh, it happened like Obviously, not immediately, but uh, through process. But uh, in comparison with uh, 2014, now we have completely different situation. Um, and uh, another thing that from historical perspective, I compared uh, the Roma uh, genocide, which I think can be called genocide, even though it's juridically not yet, uh, with uh, the Holocaust of the Jews and uh, What I argued is that? Um, the Roma annihilation is not uh, for, mm, forgotten how many uh, researchers claim because time to time uh, this topic appears in um, public space in um, Journalist articles in academia uh, but Again, if to compare with 2014, now it's more and more uh, popular, so-called popular, I mean, among um, researchers. uh, It started to be very interesting because also new archives uh, were open. Uh, For example, in Ukraine, um, the former KGB archive now is accessible and many documents um, are available, but... Of course, it's difficult to find documents about the Roma, but still possible. Uh, so the situation has changed, and uh, the main argument of my chapter is, as well has changed. So I still think that uh, Roma don't want uh, in, in at large uh, to uh, provide uh, their... Uh, stories like to open their memories to non-Roma. I still think that uh, political influence is, at large, uh, has a great impact on Roma communities, but not only negative, but also positive Mm -hmm. for involvement of the Roma into academia and uh, uh, other uh, areas of uh, studies of the Roma or promotion of their culture. but also I think that uh, if to compare with the Holocaust of the Jews, uh, there are more uh, relevancy now because we have more documents. And uh, uh, the main thing that Roma still don't receive uh, any compensations or mm. only a few number of Roma receive compensations uh, from um, uh, Germans and uh, former collaborators of Germans for the de- uh, deportations, I mean, Roma deportations, Roma extermination, whereas the Jews widely use this opportunity. So also this unjust um, attitude has to be corrected. And in this sense, it's little different what I argued in the article. Mm-hmm. So and, which, uh, where did you do your uh, fieldwork? So um, I had a couple of field works and uh, last one I did in 2016 after this I didn't do any field works because actually the age of uh, informants already is too old that they become too old and they cannot respond any more mm-hmm. questions uh, due to the physical mental situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so I did in Ukraine and Moldova in Bessarabia uh, part or uh, Ukrainian uh, Bessarabia and Moldova, mm. uh, Some respondents I found in Soroka and Kishinev in Moldova, and most of respondents were from Odessa, Mikolaev, and Vinnytsia area. So exactly. I tried to cover all Transnistria region. So um, many Roma uh, from those uh, whom I interviewed uh, didn't live um, or were not born um, before the war exactly on those places, but they were deported there or uh, they survived there. So for my uh, chapter for my research that was the main thing that uh, i um, interviewed uh, people uh, from our region who survived in transnistria even though they were not born or didn't live before they were there mm-hmm. so and mm-hmm. it covered entire transnistria territory
2: and you also <laughs> mentioned that uh, usually the roma communities do not want to uh, share or to communicate uh, to tell the same
4: story uh, why It's very difficult to explain in a couple of minutes There there are different reasons One of them that uh, In most cases the Roma communities are closed communities Mm -hmm. So again, to talk about Roma We cannot talk to them as one uh, group of people Like for example, we can talk about the Jews Uh, The Roma are Uh, divided into groups, subgroups, and uh, um, and even further to very little communities. For example, in Ismail, which is Odessa Oblast, I found three Roma communities which were hostile to each other. Mm. And uh, each of them tried to uh, talk about the Second World War. I mean, representatives of each of them tried to talk about the Second World War in different manners to show, for example, that uh, their uh, survival was more difficult than others' community. Mm-hmm. So uh, we see here this competition of victims. Mm-hmm. So why they don't want uh, to uh, talk to researchers? First of all, uh, the attitude to Gajo non-Roma, is not positive attitude because they don't know uh, Roma culture, Romanes, and... Um, they are not ours for mm-hmm. for Roma. Yeah, If, if we talk that uh, from the perspective of Roma, Gaggio are not ours, they are different. Even some Roma who uh, don't speak Romanes, they are also perceived as Gaggio in many cases. I talked to some researchers, for example, um, whom I mentioned, Ion Dominica, and he told me that he doesn't speak Romanes well, and some Roma communities don't tell him all stories. And another thing is that uh, they don't trust researchers because uh, they don't know what to expect from them. So somebody arrives, asks questions, mm. and then mm. what? So uh, I noticed in my interviews that uh, Roma uh, always, in all cases, tried to um, hint that they want something. Uh-huh. Uh, as a replacement for their uh, stories, it can be not not always uh, some material things or money, or it can be just um, sharing of some personal stories with them after the interview. Or they can uh, tell they could tell some something what they cannot tell during the interview. So it's not some always material things. It can be some psychological demands some. Mm, some need for for good word, but uh, in some cases it's also money or some food or something. They ask what mm-hmm. will be in return. Mm-hmm. Some of them just ask uh, directly what will what <laughs> I will get in return. So, and what I'm thinking that the best way to research Roma it's actually a way of anthropologists uh, who live in one small community for a couple of months or even years, and they can observe how Roma interact with each other, which stories they uh, tell each other, what they remember from the past, how they transmit uh, their memories. Uh, And this person, of course, should know uh, local dialect of Romanes. It's first and some traditions and uh, this person should be accepted by the community because in this case, uh, the person becomes uh, a community member. So uh, many things uh, which are shared um, with him uh, would be not thought that, OK, we share this with Gajo or somebody else. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I didn't use anthropological approach. I used uh, oral history approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I arrived one time, I took one interview and tried to get as much information as possible. Only the thing that always I asked uh, the, the head of the community or person known in the community to introduce me. And uh, that helped a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, thank you, thank you, Anna. Uh,
2: Daria, up's uh, idol, drunk, and good for nothing. Cultural memory of the rank and file uh, perpetrators of the uh, 1932-1933 famine in Ukraine focuses on the men and women who facilitated the mass uh, famine. How are they portrayed in cultural memory and what does this portrayal communicate regarding the perpetrators and the crime to the contemporary generation?
5: Thank you for the question. And I think the answer could be found both in the title of the volume and in the title of my article. And I wanted to add uh, to... um, the point that Matt made in, in his um, chapter, uh, that uh, memory um, of Petlura is persistent. Um, it doesn't finish with the death of Petlura. And I could see that uh, when I wor- was working on the perpetrators, um, because in my chapter I look at identifiable traces as well as memory, and I argue there is a discrepancy. So um, I did find that perpetrators sometimes uh, describe um, their victims in 1932-33 as well as the purchase of 1937 as petlurites or petlurists Mm -hmm. even if uh, these victims were and there was no evidence to suggest they were petlurites or indeed took part in the Ukrainian People's Republic but nevertheless this um, cliche this um, tag was attached to to the enemies and um, Yes, indeed. In my chapter, I argued that in cultural memory, this trope, um, there are three different modalities, how these perpetrators are described. Um, They are not representative of the demographics of the activities of the experiences of the perpetrators of the famine and on the lower level. And, uh, I argue in my work and my argument hasn't, hasn't changed since then that it was ordinary people at extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Of course there were sadists, there were criminals, there were, uh, fanatics, um, but there were ordinary people that followed orders and, um, Here I do compare the Holodomor to other cases of mass violence and genocides and indeed there are many, many similarities as well as cultural memory. Um, This is nothing new because of the burden of the memory um, uh, of such a traumatic past. People and um, in culture, they try to make sense of it, and it's difficult to explain, oh, yes, we all are capable of horrible things and committing horrible things. So sometimes we blame it on the other, on abnormal types, and hence idle, drunk, and good for nothing, as well as... um, Ideology, but it doesn't explain mass violence because, um, as in the Holocaust and in pogroms that were already mentioned, um, people take part. Many people do take part; otherwise, they wouldn't be mass cases of mass violence. And they do take part for different a myriad of um, uh, reasons and motivations. And yes, uh, so I argue that. Um, Description of perpetrators usually is reduced to either fanatics, and this is Soviet culture, mm-hmm. um, Soviet literature, um, museums, and historiography. Um, it changed somewhat in 1960s when we have de-Stalinization, so sometimes um, the blame is put squarely at the feet of um, of Stalin and his uh, henchmen. Uh, But nevertheless, Soviet is quite consistent, describing that they were unflinching Bolsheviks, they were working for the greater good. And um, then there is post-Soviet Ukrainian prose and um, uh, works that were created in diaspora. And yes, of course, uh, in this um, case, um, Cultural memory is uh, as of perpetrators is idle, drunk. They are savage, they are cruel, sadistic, and um, this is um, actually, I would argue, the most dominant trope modality <laughs> that exists today. And um, with a few cases that I mentioned in my chapter, um, dissident literature when uh, Vasily Grossman, Yevgeny um they investigate, explore. Um, the ordinary person and their experience and sometimes they're compromised into perpetration because um, they worry for their family they would starve or um, there are different insecurities that are used against people um but um unfortunately it's not a dominant discourse um so yes my argument hasn't changed and what i wrote in the article and anna helped me um To put it together, Um, she allowed me some revisions um, because I was honing it during um, those years before publication. So it stayed the same. And that's what I just Mm -hmm. described in in a nutshell.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned some dissident uh, literature and uh, how perpetrators probably presented or portrayed there. And um, I'm wondering how we identify a perpetrator uh not only in terms of morals right but uh but i think it's easier to identify a perpetrator in terms of history or some criminal principles but in terms of morals how do we how do we manage this kind of concept because i think the
5: boundaries are so uh blurry absolutely i couldn't agree more because uh, the boundaries are very porous and uh, today's perpetrator can become a victim tomorrow and vice versa. And um, indeed, it, it is very difficult to identify them. As a historian, and um, Matt already mentioned that, I have to answer the question of what and why, mm-hmm. and say I how I identify them. So I, on the front level, I look at the district officials who leveraged all the orders down to activists and um, officials on the village level. So... Uh, if they are officials like chairman or chairwoman but rarely of the collective farm that's definitely a perpetrator sometimes they would be uh, actually saving people they would use their position to save but um that was not in the majority of cases um, so um collective farm um village council Um, And the activists uh, or brigades that were doing the house searches, from house to house, they would be be requisitioning grain and foodstuffs, and those are perpetrators on the ground. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking at uh, trained perpetrators like GPU or security service uh, agents, because certainly they are perpetrators and militia or police. Um, and sometimes army was um, employed as well, as well as pioneers and Komsomol to guard the um, fields during summer of 1933 and earlier on in spring as well. So, and there is the institutions at various times were employed as well. For example, also Aviahim or Tso Aviahim in Ukrainian, um, this militarized youth organization, uh, they were also um, employed. So, As long as they were involved in enforcing the policies of um, extraction of grain on the ground, they could be qualified as perpetrators. Whether motivation, whether we're compromised or not, we are looking at the end of their actions. If you take food away from a person, you are a perpetrator because Mm -hmm. it's pretty much condemning somebody to starvation. So, yes, it's very tricky to identify somebody. And that's why um, throughout the chapter, I try to avoid passing any moral judgment because despite interdisciplinarity, um, you have to stay... um, as an observer and um, that's why it helped uh, when i was doing field work going to the villages that i had no connection to and yes i was an outsider but i was not passing the judgment and i could talk to various groups descendants of perpetrators and one case it was a perpetrator who was a 15 at the time Mm -hmm. and um, as well as victims and they were telling completely different stories um some are very obviously gruesome but otherwise very revealing what it felt like to be involved
2: mm-hmm. and where did you do your field work uh what uh oblasts
5: yes i went to um i started with memoirs of a soviet dissident Kopylev and he described and he named actually the villages where he worked and i went to those villages and um there um I, oops, I, I didn't only do um this field work trips i also went to the archives to get some background information on the villages so i done my homework before actually talking to the people i realized that he was telling me his own story which didn't correspond to what um people in the village uh, locals were telling me as well as um security service reports on him were telling some other details, which becomes this of uh, what Anna already mentioned earlier in the introduction on the legal Margajata, that there is this. Uh, <laughs> Differences in memory, how people do remember, and it all coexists. And this is what makes um, this research interesting for historians. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, thank you, Daria. And uh, my uh, final question, which I would like to address to everyone, uh, is somehow connected with the comment that Daria just uh, mentioned about uh, past being a burden. So, uh, in Ukraine, uh, cultural uh, memory uh, studies is still quite a new field, particularly in terms of specific case studies, which help illustrate in fact how memorial practices work. However, there is a lot of um, uh, interest towards how the individuals and the nation in general remember events uh, and what these narratives can help us understand in terms of how a society can be presented locally and globally and I think, Daria, your uh, response right now confirmed um, this kind of overlap of the individual and the uh, collective. Um, So the volume is titled The Burden of the Past Uh, Why burden? So because it really has this kind of heavy feeling, um, pessimistic maybe to some extent tragic, traumatic. And I would like uh, maybe um, everyone to uh, comment on your um, understanding, interpretation of this title. Maybe we can start with uh, Anna.
3: Yes, I should probably uh, start with saying that of course the title refers to Catherine Vanner's *The Burden of the Dreams*, <laughs> uh, which is a really classical uh, book on Ukraine, and we had this book somehow in mind when working on the volume. And well, in fact, I think that this kind of past that we were working on uh, in this volume is a burden that you can just you can just leave behind, right? Because literally, burden is, you can leave behind, and you can go further, right? In that case, you can't, because it will not disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even even though you you might uh, uh, pretend that it's not existing, it will exist and it will. Up. So, of course, it would be much easier for Ukrainian people not to have uh well, uh, all these issues of love. And of course, first and foremost, all these difficulties in uh, uh, judging the past uh, with Russia, right? So uh, this all remains a burden that should be well, um, well worked with, uh, worked through, and it can be not achieved in Ways other than discussing, uh, dialoguing. I, I, we didn't, we didn't want to sound pessimistic mm-hmm. when, when um, um, planning the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still, well, I still uh, believe that there are great chances to solve. Maybe not all, and not right now, but just solve uh, most of these difficult issues and. Then, then then they uh, stop being a burden and then and mm-hmm. they might well constitute a good basis good ground for they need to be looked after and
2: uh, and solved and this is why burden. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe we should change the way we think about a burden. It's not something yeah. <laughs> pessimistic, but it's something that we have to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Anna. Yeah. Matt? Um,
1: uh, I would agree with that sentiment that you just raised. That certainly was Thought that was shaping my thinking as I was thinking about how to respond to you. I mean, I I would view burden uh, as not necessarily a burden on the individual memory, although it certainly can shape that memory. But burden really speaks to this notion of collective memory and um, and myth making in the present, right? As 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 a one individual or group of individuals aspires to cast a different story into the public square there there is uh, a, another memory that competes and pulls it back mm-hmm. so i i suppose i would think of burden as as this sort of weight i um i end the essay however with this firm assertion that in my case uh, in the discussion of pedora one need not be forever tied to the soviet historiography of this person mm-hmm. right but you have to acknowledge that it exists mm-hmm. and that it has an influence and that the memory of pedora has a dynamic existence um, in the present that uh, has, I suppose, one foot in the Soviet interpretation uh, of his place in Ukrainian history, um, but uh, has, has a life beyond that interpretation mm-hmm. as well. Yes,
2: uh, very true. So uh, this stage of uh, recognizing, acknowledging and accepting uh, of what happened in the past and how we can deal with it in the present is, I, I, I think, is very important.
4: Uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, Anna? Mm-hmm. For me, when I worked on my chapter and um, first time I saw the title of the book, uh, The Burden of the Past, I immediately referred this um, in my mind to the fate of people, Mm. individuals who told me their stories, uh, the Roma who survived and whole life had this burden to think what had happened, why it had happened. Uh, "How to tell about it in the community and to their own children and then grandchildren and how to deal with it and this is real psychological burden individual burden for uh, those people um, so, it's what I was thinking mm-hmm. immediately.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, in other words, uh, there is this overlap of the individual and the collective as well, and uh, there are different ways
4: yeah,
5: of thinking. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Anna. Uh, Daria? Um, I would add only that, um, well, I already mentioned about the burden uh, mm-hmm. being uh, speaking to uh, my chapter in particular, and this way, why I think it is important to have uh, such volumes, such collections Mm -hmm. of uh, discussions of the burden, different cases of um, traumatic past in Mm -hmm. uh, Ukrainian history, um, to make sense of the past and to understand why it happened, uh, what happened and why it happened. Mm -hmm. And this is the way forward so that um, such traumatic memories would not be uh, instrumentalized and uh, used uh, in the politics as much as they are today.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, thank you so much, Daria. Uh, Uh, Yes, I also believe that this volume uh, is very important for many, many reasons, but uh, in the first place, because it somehow uh, maintains, sustains and also encourages uh, conversations about those pasts that Ukraine uh, has and uh, uh, it's uh, some sort of this uh, conversation that should be uh, not only sustained, but uh, uh, we should move forward uh, talking about this past, because uh being um uh, open right being open about those tragic and traumatic events is very important for how we build our country further and how we um try to if that uh, sounds a little bit romantic and idealistic, that's fine. But for consolidating the nation around these uh, multiple visions of the past and um, keeping these pasts open uh, and available uh, to the, uh, I think it's quite it's quite an, an interesting approach that he took with this uh, with this uh, volume, uh, pointing uh, out um, uh, different um, facts and uh, putting them together into this. Um, narrative well uh i would like to thank uh, everyone thank you anna daria matt anna uh thank you so much for your time today and um uh of course congratulations on this uh important uh, volume and uh thank you for your research Thank thank you thank you very much natalia thank you natalia Uh, Today, I spoke with the contributors of The Burden of the Past, History, Memory, and Identity in Contemporary Ukraine, published by Indiana University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.